Revelation chapter 17 today. Take your Bibles and turn there. I'll have you stand in just a moment. Let me invite you to stand this morning. We'll get right to our text. We are working our way through the book of Revelation, known as the Apocalypse, recording the last days of our planet's history, and of course, humanity as we would now know it before we go into the millennial reign, and then of course, into eternity. We are at a place now, we're at the very end of really what we call time. And God has um, led humanity through a seven-year period called the Tribulation. First and a half years, the Great Tribulation, the last three and a half years. And this is a time of God's judgment upon the sins of the world, where His wrath is being fully manifest upon this world. It is also a time when the Antichrist has risen to world dominance and power. He will be the singular political religious influence in the world at this time. He has garnered and gathered all power unto him. And he and his false prophet who are performing miracles uh, somewhat um, uh, in imitation to how the Lord would have it done are now about to be judged. The title of our message this morning is The End of Satan's Kingdom. The End of Satan's Kingdom. And there came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, and I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit to the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. That word really means he was astonished. He was astonished. There's a bit of perplexity in this great scene, is what he's saying. And the angel said to me, Wherefore did thou marvel? I will tell thee the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carried her, which hath the seven heads and ten horns. Now the beast that thou sawest was, and is not, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit, and go into perdition. And they that dwell upon the earth shall wonder whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they behold the beast that was, and is not, and yet is. And here is the mind which hath wisdom, the seven heads are seven mountains, on which the woman sitteth. And there are seven kings, five are fallen, the one is, and the other is not yet come. And when he cometh, he must continue a short space. And the beast that was and is, even he is the eighth, and is one of the seven, and goeth into perdition. And the ten horns which thou sawest were ten kings, or ten kings, which have received no kingdom as of yet, but received power as kings one hour with the beast. Now these have one mind and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. These shall make war with the lamb and the lamb shall overcome them for he is the Lord of lords and king of kings. And they that are with him 
are called the chosen and faithful. And he said unto me, The waters which thou sawest where the horse sitteth are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, and this is fascinating, these shall hate the whore and shall make her desolate and naked and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God hath put in their hearts to fulfill His will and to agree and give their kingdom unto the beast until the words of God shall be fulfilled. And the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. Our Heavenly Father, I pray the next few moments that, Lord, you might help us to make sense of the text. And then, Lord, to understand, Lord, the principle, the message that is here, that, Lord, you intended for the original hearers, these, these persecuted, scattered Christians of Asia Minor, who are suffering at the hands of Rome and perhaps tempted, Lord, not to remain faithful and true. And so, Lord, I pray you'd help us in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for honoring the Lord and His Word by standing. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God made man singularly and uniquely in all of creation in his own likeness. A tripart being having a physical part, a soul, and a spirit. And God made man in this likeness to have dominion, to rule and steward the earth the beautiful creation that He had made. And man was made uniquely to enjoy and to be involved in relationship with God as no other creature, as magnificent as they were, were able to do. God made man to fellowship with Himself. Like God, we have a spirit that is meant to commune with our Creator. But that fellowship with God by man was short-lived, in ages past, a glorious archangel, perhaps a seraphim, like one of the living creatures that surround God's throne, because of his magnificence, of his brilliance, his great beauty and wisdom and intellect, because of his great power, believed a, del a delusional lie in his own heart. This is where sin began, in the very heart and being of Lucifer, then become Satan. He believed that he could usurp the throne of God and become like Him. In the book of Isaiah records that Satan saying, I will ascend unto God's holy hill. I will be like Him. There's seven great I will statements that Satan truly believed in his heart. This incredible creature organized rebellion in which one-third of the angels of heaven conspired with Lucifer to partake in. That is amazing and a testament to his own magnificence, but a created creature of God. He organized that rebellion, but then in defeat, the devil and his legions were cast out of heaven by God and his angels, and the earth became his new abode. And though defeated in the heavens, Satan continued his war with God. He would not relent, he would not stop. His chief aim has always been to kill and to steal and destroy all that is good, all that is beautiful, all that is holy, all that is righteous. His intent is to besmirch God's kingdom 
and principally to target those made in his own image to keep them from their purpose, and that is to fellowship with God. That is a task, a tactic that he has for every single one of us here today. The delusion and lie that he believed, he, he projected that, of course, to Adam and Eve, and they too desired, the Bible tells us, to be like God, not in holiness, but in kind. And sin was now born in humanity, and their spirit, the part that communed with God, did die. Fellowship with God was broken, and Satan's long scheme has been to disable God from redeeming mankind. Much of the Old Testament about Satan's attempt to, to sully the bloodline of the Savior, to stop him from coming. And here in the book of Revelation, much of what he is doing is to stop the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, from coming again. He still desires to keep as many of us from God as he can. And to do this, he has preyed upon a chief characteristic of man, something that resides in all of our hearts, something that is innate, that is part of us that we cannot eradicate, that we cannot move. And that is, there is a need in mankind to worship. We innately know that there is something more than ourselves. We have this need to be engaged and involved in what the world calls religion, that we believe that there is something more. We don't know how to quantify it, but there is a God-shaped hole in all of our hearts, and man needs to bow down and to serve something, whether it be the God of heaven or the dollar bill. Humanity worships, and humanity serves. We have this innate impetus in all of our hearts but in the brokenness of sin, man's compass no longer directly points to God. In confusion and brokenness and lie and delusion, man can um, still worship God. But in that vacuum, he can also choose to worship other things. So Satan has labored hard to fill the vacuum of man's heart. Not with the worship of God, but with religion. And that's what's in view in our text. Now, I understand there's a time in maybe America's history when I, if I would have said religion, that would have been synonymous with Christianity. But that's, that's not really what it is. Religion is nothing more than a substitute for relationship with God. Religion is about ordinances and rules. It's about sacrifice and appeasement. It is about a kind of atonement that requires no sacrifice, no holiness, nothing on our part. It is a system of mankind that was derived in the heart of Satan to keep us from relationship with God. In time, this religious enterprise became institutionalized. There was a day in the Bible when men began to multiply, and a great man, a mighty man, whose name was Nimrod, organized and gathered a significant part of humanity together into a plain known as the, the Plain of Babel. And this is where the region of Babylon would contemporarily be today in the Middle East. And he became humanity's first king, first real kind of organized ruler. And it's indicated that Nimrod had no love for God. And he led humanity in rebellion against God and directed them to build a tower to the heavens, conspiring the same thought that Satan did 
to take the place of God and usurp him. And evidently in those days he instituted perhaps one of the very first religious systems that grew and grew apart from God. From that day forward, Babel, or the future side of Babylon, became the byword, the phrase that God would use throughout His Word to describe the destructive tendency of man's heart to be involved in idolatry, false religion, confusion of all sorts. The mystery of Babylon still continues today, and it's manifest in the religions, in the religious systems around the world. We have this heart that we have used Satan's lie, and today men are involved in pagan worship still. This is where Greek mythology, Roman mythology came from. This is where pantheonism came from, Buddhism came from, Islam comes from. Comes from. It's a place that Hinduism was born. This is the place where the synchronistic worship of the Catholic Church and cults and human philosophy of humanism was born. Through religion, man thinks he's finding God, but he is not. As a matter of fact, he's more, he's further away from God than he's ever been. It's often been said that the hardest man to win to God in the world is a religious man. And that is so often the truth. It is simply a tool of Satan to keep us from the one who made us. But during the tribulation, the satanically inspired Antichrist will gather all the religions of the world into one great melding pot. He will bring them together in the greatest ecumenical movement the world has ever seen. And in the confusion and of God's judgment upon the world, he will use his religious leader, the false prophet, the antithesis to the Holy Spirit, and he will work miracles and effectively unite the world's religion into one great Babylonian mystery religion. And this is really the worship, if you will, of Satan through the Antichrist. It will be humanity's return to the Tower of Babel. And we know that because just those people gathered to build the tower, humanity will gather together in the Valley of Armageddon, the great, last great war against God. And of course, we know the outcome of that, and we'll rehearse that just in a few chapters. But in our text today, and I had hoped to look at both 17 and 18, that's not going to happen, and you'll probably be happy about that. God's tolerance of Satan's abuse of man's heart through religion and political system it comes to an end. And the outpouring of the seventh vial, the seventh bowl, um, God's other judgments have already come. This is the last of a trio of judgments, a seven-part a seven judgment. This is the last of God's judgment. This is the last thing to occur before the triumphal entry of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the eschaton, the coming of the Lord. This is the last thing to happen really in human history as we know it. God pours out His seventh vial or bowl in chapter 16. Jesus Christ stands at the precipice of, of space to come into uh, you know, our world and to smash the armies gathered at Armageddon and establish His millennial reign. And He comes in a final act and He destroys Babylon. It's not talking about just a place, not just the city. 
We, there's some double meaning in some of the phrases today. The city upon seven hills was an ancient reference to the city of Rome. This is most likely where the Antichrist will reestablish his earthly political center. But he's coming back to destroy the system, the world, the, 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 the schemes of Satan. And here in our text, principally view is the religious system, all the corruption through all the centuries that Satan has manifest. He's coming to destroy Babylon. The kingdoms and schemes of Satan finally falls. Lucifer's reign of terror on this planet is finally over. And this is what the last verses of our text are about. John in chapter 17 and 18 is led by the, one of the seven angels, one of these great apocalyptic angels to a final vision, two great final visions. He's led into the wilderness. And first he sees... The decimation, which is recorded in chapter 17, the decimation of the world's religious system. In verse 1 of our text this morning, <clears throat> we see God's unfiltered thinking about what Satan has done over the centuries. And this religion, this one world system of religion now is called the great whore. It's an indication of unfaithfulness, of violating that which is sacred. It's the covenant that God intended to be between man and him, that this whore is always broken. It's come in and seduced humanity and stolen them away. And it's described as residing on many waters. The idea here is it has almost ubiquitous, universal influence upon the world. Religion of the centuries has diluted men's hearts, kings and kingdoms followed. They have drunk in verse 2 her intoxicating elixir of religious thought and has led them away from the true God. In verse 3, religion is described as a woman sitting upon a beast. We already know this creature to be the Antichrist. So here we see the beast supporting this religious system, if you will, with same time using her using this system to eventually point the world to him. And we'll see in a moment when it's achieved that purpose, he will discard it. In verse 4, we see um, this religious system and its seductive ability and this, it's this, this cup of lies. Religion is dressed in this, this text as beautiful, ornate, full of gold. There's something that's attractive about um, the, these, these false religions of the world. Humanism in this cup of deception is poured out. And the way that alcohol intoxicates, religion can do the same. And it's described as, though beautiful and appealing, these words are graphic, filthy, fornicating, the mother of harlots, and the abominations of the earth. In verse 6, John sees how religion has inspired kings and their kingdoms um, to destroy God's people. All through the Old Testament, nation after nation after nation, and the religious systems that most likely were birthed and born in Babel were used to persecute God's people. To, to keep people from God. And then, of course, in our time, the New Testament, these schemes of religion to keep us from the heart of God. 
And all this perplexes John. It's like he's seen for the first time. Wait a second. Satan is behind all these world religions. He's behind all these things to pursue God's people. He's the one who's behind everything to try to keep man from God. And it amazes him and it overwhelms him. And, and there's parts of this vision he does not understand. So the angel takes a moment to explain in detail what John has seen. And he describes the fact that the beast is the Antichrist, the political arm of Satan's scheme to subjugate humanity. He is the one inspired by the devil who's come from the pit. And so what he's saying is, as John's looking at this vision and he's seen, you know, all the, the, the things that Satan has conspired to do and has kept humanity from God. But the angel is quick to remind him, and oh, by the way, this one shall go into perdition. His day will come to an end. He's in the moment, in the vision, he must look glorious and amazing. But the angel reminds John that this one shall go into perdition. There's detail here that's confusing. It's not necessarily linear, linear, but this beast is described as the one who was, the one who is, and the one who will be again. If you remember in our former study, there'll be a time during the tribulation, the very end, when Satan declares himself God, and he will be struck down and killed, whether he is so or not, it will appear so to humanity. And then the great um, religious leader of his day, the false prophet, will create life in him again and he will rise up and this will be part of what unifies the world religions around him. So that's what he's referring to. It's just it's a way of uh, identifying him as the beast that he's referring to. He's the one who was and he will be and then it'll appear though he is dead and then he will be again. So all these phrases are being used to describe the Antichrist. And that's what's happening in verses 9 and 10. The angel gives some information about the history of Satan's schemes then, and the utilization of kingdoms and religions to subdue the world. And he refers to the beast as having seven heads and ten horns. We, we know this is, again, all this is trying to describe what, what has happened in history, what is now happening at the time of the apocalypse. So you have these days of the Tower of Babel, and then God, of course, scatters the people of Babel into various languages. But the religious system there propagates throughout history as nations rise and become unified. And we know from Daniel that the seven kingdoms referred here are seven great kingdoms that will really rise in the world. And five were, one is, and one will be. And, and these kingdoms, in specific reference to the Bible, would be Egypt was, and Assyria was, Babylon was, and then Persia was, Greece was, and then there will be the one that is at the right of this day, Rome. And then we know that the one that will come, the day of the tribulation, will be the revised Roman Empire yet once again. And that's the one the Antichrist will lead. And then there will be a, a confederacy of seven provinces, seven nations that are not yet, and they don't exist today. This is not the Commonwealth, some European Federation. This is something that will rise in that day to honor the Antichrist, and they will rule and reign with him. And that is the ten horns. It's a lot of information. It seems a bit scattered, perhaps, and esoteric. But it is trying to identify the vision that John will see. But here's the irony of the text. And I, I, I'm probably going to come back to this in chapter 18. Satan consolidates all the power of the Antichrist, the end times. 
It's one world religion. We all understand that. But here's the thing. The text says at the end, once Antichrist is consolidating power, that the king, the ten kings, her loyal prince with Antichrist, Antichrist himself, will turn on the religious system itself. Now, how this happens and how this burns and the graphic description that God has, I don't know if this will be all the religious temples in the world will be, will be burned and, and desecrated. I don't know if they'll be wiped out by the Antichrist in some kind of pseudo-miraculous event. But in the very last days, the only one left standing is going to be the Antichrist. And his religious system is going to be wiped out by himself. Now, I'm going to tell you, there, there's such a lesson there that I may come back to, is that uh, you may think walking with sin will get you where you want to go, and it might to a degree, but at the end it'll always extract from you. And that what you think is giving life and fun will kill you at the end. And that's a whole thought that I hope to come back to again. All this happens at the direct dynamic by the omniscient will of God, who always knew this would happen. It's a principle, but He also makes it happen. And all that is left in chapter 18 will be the political system of the Antichrist, which God Himself will destroy in the coming chapter. It's a lot of visual. It's it's a lot to take in. But the theme of this chapter includes God's continued judgment. The sovereignty of God, His ability to manipulate the events and plans and schemes of the universe to His own ends. But this morning, in the next few minutes, I want us to consider this thought, and it's singular today. You you and I think about sin, and because it's so frequently a part of our world, we grow indifferent to it. And we we are told over and over and over as a culture. Okay, let, let me stop for a second. I, 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 I'm preaching to a choir today, but you understand suggesting in today's world that Christianity is the only true faith is political heresy. Suggesting that those religious systems are false and lead men to perdition well, um, in a day not too far from now, that might get me crucified. That could certainly get me in trouble to make the suggestion that there's only one way to heaven, and that's through the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. To suggest there's not a world full of sincere, goodwill intended motives, and that really there's only one way we can get there, and that is through the faith, genuine faith of Christianity. Well, that does not play in today's political system and news media very well at all. So we grow, you know, we, we drive down the road and we see these little stickers that say, you know, um, the theme is basically be ecumenical, be accepting, be tolerant. You know, uh, they, they, they play these things backwards. You just love everyone. Well, here's the, you can love everyone, but you can't love everyone's religion. And genuine love would try to pull them out of those false systems. Here's the thought. God's hatred and His unfiltered feelings for religion, idolatry, 
And anything and everything else that pulls us from relationship with him is, is in graphic view in our text. These words are hard. The world religion is like a harlot. Stealing men and women's hearts away from the Creator. It is like a great whore, the mother of harlots, the source of all the abominations of the world. That's how God looks at the religious system of our world. The history of the Old Testament is about God's correction of idolatry in the heart of His own people, their synchronistic worship. We'll worship God and we'll worship Baal and we'll worship Chemosh and we'll worship you know, Molech. And God hates that. He is a jealous God. He desires our whole heart, uh, an unmitigated, uh, completely yielded heart for Him. There is no place for serving the world and serving God. And we, we accept that sometimes in ourselves, but it's not something God ever, ever wants for us. God's punishment and judgment of the pagan nations is about how they received judgment for thwarting Him and His people. As we have studied through the minor prophets on Wednesday nights, we've heard God speak over and over and over about His angst with His people breaking the covenant. The covenant is what? A kind of relationship between God and His people that requires fidelity and loyalty and commitment. And they constantly break that in part by worshiping themselves or idols, these false religious systems. And God hates it. He hates it. He will not share his glory, his praise, his worship with another. And yet it's appealing to the human heart. Verse 4 describes religion. And when I say religion, I, I, I'm not just talking about Islam or Buddhism. I'm talking about humanism and Darwinism and all the philosophies that would alienate the hearts of men from God. Verse 4, it's appealing. It's beautiful. It's like gold and jewels. It's a, it's a cup that humanity often wants to drink from. Just as there is pleasure in sin for a season, but the truth is it's a cup of death. The allure of living for something other than God is always present in the human heart. We struggle with it. Whether that's a religious system or in today's world of even pseudo-Christianity's easy believism, one of our great plagues of Christianity is we've taken a form of it but denied its power. We've made it about health, wealth, and prosperity, and a thousand other things, and loyalty, devotion, commitment, and serving the true Lord. We often distort Christianity into these phony promises that require less holiness and righteousness on our part, that can simply be appeased by going to church on Sunday, saying a few words, and go live like you want to in the world. God hates that stuff. Amen. He hates it. So, a lesson for us. And I, if, forgive me for the language. I'm just going to borrow from the text. You know, I, 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 I know the answer to this question for the rest of the world. But knowing how much God hates idolatry in our hearts, the question I have is this. What are the harlots 
or the appealing things in the golden cups that keep you and me from the intimacy of God that He desires? I just want you to think about that for a second. God's constant appeal was come, from out, come out from among them and be ye separate. Don't be partakers of their sins. Love not the world or the things of the world. These things aren't of God. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. These things are, are going to go away. 1 John 2, 17. They're going to go away. They're going to be gone. All these things, these, these things that cause the heart of men to be unfaithful, they're not going to last. I don't know how you measure on a like or scale, 1 to 10, your level of commitment and devotion. And you may have persuaded yourself that that gap between 5 and 10, 7 and 10, or 2 and 10, you know, it doesn't matter that much because really it's just it's that thing that I, I'm trusting Christ as my Savior. You know, I, I don't know how to figure all that in my heart. That's, that's God to decipher and to figure out. But God forbid that in our lives would be any part of the structure that one day He intends to destroy. The love of the world. The lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes, or the pride of life. What keeps you from giving? It's not God. Nor would it be a heart full of devotion. No, that's something else. What keeps you from being faithful in church, regularly attending, being marginal in your attendance? What if it's some of the stuff he's coming back to destroy, to burn up? What a, what, what a terrifying thought to think maybe we've allowed Satan to confuse us, to, to marginalize our devotion to God through some of his schemes. What if we tolerate way too much of indifference and apathy, partly at Satan's direction in, his, in the way that the usage of the media? Are you okay with being nominal? All I can tell you is this. Is that, look up here. This isn't a religious exercise today. If we're not facilitating relationship between you and God today, then we're messing up. It's not what this effort is about. We don't give this hour so you could come in here and mouth some words to a song. And, pa and pass the, the, one of the only acts of real worship you can do is to give part of your life to your giving or to measure your devotion to God right now. If you're not here, if we're not here to do that, then we're involved in something religious. And if this pacifies your religious itch, then God help you. Because it'll serve no purpose in getting you into heaven. It'll do nothing to cleanse any unrighteousness from your soul. All of that only comes from a relationship with God through His Son because of the atoning work on the cross. If you've never asked God to forgive you through Christ for your sins, then you've never been involved in anything but religious or maybe even a religious.
This isn't about, we say we're going to church. I, I know what we mean. We should be saying, we're going to go meet with God. You know, I, 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 I'm trying to pass this place and we sing a choir song. And I know it's the words that we practiced the week before. <laughs> and it's just what's on the schedule. But it, it can't be that. When you choir members sing, you need to embody the song and its intent and its meaning. It's worship. You should worship. Lead us to worship. It can't be the next thing that's on Sunday schedule. It, it can't be the piece of paper on the front row that I have that helps me know what's going to happen next. It's got to be more than that. God hates it. Isaiah 1 and the book of Ezekiel and the news said over and over, I loathe your solemn assemblies. I, I loathe your religion. I want your heart. We meet in Sunday school to organize our efforts to communicate and help, you know, grow people, fellowship. But its intent is to move your heart towards God. That's what these services are about. I understand there's a system in the tribulation that God is going to destroy. But what if, what if the wine of that cup, just a little bit, has eked into our hearts? why it says in chapter 18, come out. Come out from among them. It's hard to live in a filthy, awful, polluted world and not be soiled by it. I believe that God wants more from us than just a modicum of Christianity. He wants our whole heart. Keep this in mind. God loved you so much that He died for you. And He experienced your hell. Why would we then yield part of our life to that which does not matter? Why would we engage in the activities of the barn builder in Luke 12? Accumulating treasures for no eternal purpose. Why not Matthew? Lay up your treasures in heaven. Why would any true believer trade any part of their life and the way it's lived for the things and the attractive qualities of this world? Especially at the end of that, it's just to bite you back for your loyalty. We owe our God more than that. We will always be servants to whom we obey. Romans 6. God wants us to serve Him, not nominally, but wholeheartedly and completely. We're not to drink of the cup of the whore or the harlot of the world. It's religion. It's philosophies. It's system. It's humanism. It's Darwinism. It's ungodly principles and precepts. We don't drink out of that cup. We're partakers of another. And God help us. Let me ask you to stand.